0: Welcome to Pullback, the podcast where we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. And this episode, we're joined by Brianna Botchway. Brianna is a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Toronto, and she studies the sustainable development goals, hashtag SDG, (laughs) Uh, Brianna, we're so excited to have you on the show, uh, to talk about exclusion and privilege and ethical consumption. Uh, I think as you had proposed, we're going to focus on fashion, but I think it's a question that sort of impacts any kind of ethical consumption in sort of various ways. And I know that this is something that you think about a lot, and it was your idea to have an episode on this. So I wonder if maybe you can describe for the listener... What generally you mean by privilege and exclusion, ethical consumption? Maybe we can start the discussion there.
1: Yeah. So when I was when you first proposed that I, I, I might contribute to the podcast, um, you know, I was trying to think of something in terms of ethical consumption that, you know, affects me on a, on a daily basis, or at least has affected my ability to consume ethically. Um, and so I was thinking about the ways that I've been excluded from um, ethical consumption. And so I should say, you know, I'm normally uh, a size 16 and I'm also mixed race, so I have darker skin. Um, and, you know, generally size 16, you're like sort of borderline straight size, but also most of the time you're plus size. Um, but I just wanna acknowledge that that is on the smaller end, right, so I'd still have access. like I can go into most stores and find something that will fit my body. I mean, whether it'll be flattering is a whole other thing, but at least it will fit my body, <laughs> you know? <laughs> which is not the case for a lot of other plus size people. And so I just thought, you know, there's this whole subset of people being denied access to ethical consumption, at least when it comes to clothing. And you also see this, for example, in beauty, people who have darker skin, or even people who are super, super pale. Although I would say the pale people have access to Korean skincare, which is like amazing, um, which I'm really sad to not (laughs) have access to. Um, So I just, I wanted to I think not, not a lot of people, they don't think twice when they walk into a store, but whether they'll be able to fit into something. They don't think twice um, when they go shop for beauty products, but whether they'll be able to find their shade, right? And that's sort of these privileges that people don't think about, right? Usually when people think about like privilege, you're like, oh, you know, I've had access to so many more resources. I have access to this education or to this job. But, you know, privilege can express itself in these sort of more mundane things like beauty and fashion. Um, so that's sort of what I was thinking about when when I think about, you know, privilege and exclusion in this space.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good description. Um, and now that you've sort of explained a little bit about how you felt excluded, I wonder if maybe Kyla and I can briefly reflect on that for ourselves as well. Yeah, Kyla, I don't I don't know whether you have any initial thoughts. Um, I
2: I, I can't relate at all to being excluded from the beauty industry. And that is, I don't know if it's a problem, I guess. I'm a petite little white girl, so I can walk into any makeup shop and there'll be something in my shade and I can walk into any store and there'll be something in my size. And it's exactly like Brianna said, it's something that I have never, ever had to think about. And it's unfair (laughs) that I can walk around and have this ease of access and so many other
0: people can't. For sure, yeah. I was thinking about it um, in in terms of the class dimensions, I think, because I mean, throughout my life, I my sizes have fluctuated. And so I have sort of got at certain points in my life been um, closer to plus size, but I've never been to a point where I haven't been able to be sized in a store. So I haven't experienced that. And obviously as a, a white cisgender woman, I uh, haven't experienced the racial exclusion. So most of my exclusion from ethical consumption is about class. And so I was trying to think about some of the dimensions on which that's happened. Um, and I thought, like, obviously, money, um, we'll talk about ethical consumption. Yeah. And uh... <laughs> I guess I could have mentioned that, like, I can't
2: walk into a Patagonia and buy something. Probably <laughs> well, not a best
0: yeah, that's where I thought you were gonna go, but <laughs> oh yeah, no, I just I was just I just felt so like
2: sad about uh, Brianna's examples because she's right, but yeah, I guess obviously I'm poor. I was born poor. I'll probably die poor. Like, <laughs> uh, I, I guess, I guess, yeah, to Kristen. Before before we get too far away from from what you asked me, I'm just gonna use that real quick. You mentioned before when I was like, I don't know what to do as a challenge for this. You were like, Oh, just look up your favorite brand and see what kind of, you know, diversity they offer in sizes. And I was like, Oh, I don't have a favorite brand because everything I own is from a secondhand shop or like maybe a winners if i decided to treat myself so the only thing i own that i have like more than one of in the same brand other than my h&m panties shout out shout out to those comfy <laughs> things uh, <laughs> is uh my hatley pajamas that i treated myself to when they went on steep discount at a shop i worked at last year and so i looked at the hatley company for their pajamas because i can't like i don't I just, I can't afford to shop anywhere. So I guess I'm excluded in that way, but it's harder to consider that.
0: No, for sure. And um, I think it's not just sort of like, when we're talking about class dimensions and exclusion from ethical consumption, it's not just the straight up price of the item. It's also like having the luxury of time to be able to research ethical brands. Um, Go try stuff on. Yeah. And like when we're talking about non-clothing items, a lot of the time... Like, space is a factor, too. Like, my my apartment right now is probably the most space I've had since I left my parents' house, and it's, like, a 600-square-foot apartment. So, um, like, space is a premium for sure. And then also, um, I think a lot of people in our generation have to move a lot throughout their lives, whether for school or for yes. work. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my
2: God. <laughs> <laughs> Does it fit in a backpack? No? Then I can't own it.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. I went to, um, Kyla and I were in Malta and Kyla was traveling with a just a backpack, but not like a backpacker's backpack. She had shoved all her belongings into Wait. like... A school backpack. That is like a full of
1: epic. That is amazing.
0: I was super impressed. Thank you. I was very proud of myself for many,
2: many years about it. But now I'm a hoarder. So what are you going (laughs) to (laughs) do? Like, I'm in an apartment. I can own things. I have three spatulas now. You have three spatulas? (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't know. Someone gave me one and I already and I went and bought one and then I treated myself to a fancy one I saw it Winners. So You know what? You know what? You only live once. If you need three spatulas, you need three <laughs> spatulas. I don't need three spatulas. I'm going to be making a run to the, I'll do, I don't know, I'm donating them something. Anyways, I was also thinking, Kristen, um, Mm -hmm. another way that people are going to be excluded now is because of COVID, anybody who's an at-risk person won't be able to go try on clothing in the stores
0: anymore. Yeah, that's true. I actually don't even, I haven't been clothing shopping since the pandemic started. And I don't know, I have to imagine there'd be a lot of anxiety wrapped up in that. I don't
1: know. Yeah, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't want to go clothes shopping right now, like in person. I mean, you can shop online, a lot of these brands, but that also assumes you have access to internet, you have access to a computer, you know, you have a good sense of how things fit without trying them on. I will say too, even if you can go into a store, you know, if you, if you're perceived to look a certain way and that can apply to class, that can apply to race, you know, have you ever had like the shop people look at you weirdly? I feel like if they feel you don't belong in a store, they'll definitely give you like a side eye.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. Mm, I have experienced that. They'll look at the clothes you're already wearing and be like,
0: you shouldn't be here.
2: Yeah, they make judgments. Yeah, which is another way
1: that people are, feel excluded, you know, they feel like they're other, that they don't belong in that space.
0: Yeah,
2: absolutely. I actually have a relevant example for this. Uh, I walked into a Louis Vuitton because oh my God. I was just in the town, and I was like, "Oh, why not?" You know. And I was walking around the store, and the shopkeeper came over to me, and she was like, "Excuse me," and I was like, "Oh no, here it comes." And she's like, "Your shorts um, have ridden up your butt, and my butt, my butt cheek was hanging out of one of my shorts. Like it wasn't even both of them had gone up; just one short had gone up." <laughs> Uh, I was like, thank you. And I left. <laughs> <laughs> and then I never wore those shorts again.
0: Probably a good thing.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, all right. So um, I, maybe I'll just set out the way I thought we might structure this episode. Uh, so Brianna, because you had sort of said you wanted to focus on fashion and um, you had mentioned wanting to connect it to our fast fashion series, which I think is a great idea. Um, So I thought that one way to sort of frame that is in our third clothing episode, we talked about the different strategies for building uh, an ethical closet. And there are kind of like in terms of looking for new clothes, there are three strategies that are recommended there. So I thought we could look at uh, exclusion in each of those three categories. So the first one is like looking for big better big brands. So those are the big brands that are doing better than their peers. The second one is looking for like sustainable superstars, uh, which are slow fashion brands that focus on human rights and sustainability. And then the last one is new to you secondhand clothing. So thrifting, renting, clothes subscription, swapping and borrowing. Sound good? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but before we do that, what I'd like to do is just to to talk about what are some of the barriers that people might face in trying to build a more conscious wardrobe. Uh, you had listed a few, so I'm wondering if maybe you could just sort of describe what those were and um, your rationale for including them.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the first one we just talked about, really, well, sort of. I mean, it came up um, when we were talking about class in terms of cost. I mean, the cost of some of these sustainable fashion clothes is truly astronomical. And part of that is justified. You know, I mean, in theory, because some of them, you know, they'll say they're sustainable, they do weird shenanigans. (laughs) Um, You know, in theory, they're paying people a living wage. In theory, they're probably made, you know, in Canada or wherever country you're you're based in. And they're usually made with, you know, like organic or or high quality fabrics, right? So you can partially justify having an increased price. I mean, they're never going to be the price of fast fashion. But, you know, I went and bought a pair of jeans the other day and I'm going to say this was a huge splurge. And they were like almost over $100 for a pair of jeans. Like that is just most people would not have access to that for a pair of jeans. So I think cost is a huge barrier. Um, And that's you can also see that in other types of ethical consumption, too. Like, I mean, organic food from Whole Foods is it's wild.
0: Oh, my God. Sorry. Just related to that. (laughs) Did you see the quote from the Whole Foods founder?
1: Oh, my God, no. What did they say?
0: Uh, I don't have – well, I will, like, tweet about the actual quote because I don't have it available to me. But basically what he was saying was uh, we tried to put Whole Foods in impoverished neighborhoods, and, like, people didn't want to shop there because people are addicted to unhealthy foods. <laughs> it's like maybe it's because it costs, like, $6 for an organic garlic. Like, like- –
1: oh god why are they so how could they think that that would be like an okay response that they weren't going to be attacked for that like i know. are so clueless I just anyways maybe I shouldn't shop at Whole Foods anymore <laughs> um yeah he sounds he sounds awful yeah so the next thing that you know I alluded to already was in terms of sizing so most of the sustainable fashion brands I've seen some of the bigger brands the more I guess what did you call them the better the better brands um, will go up, have more sizing uh, because they do cater to, you know, a larger um, group of people. But most of the like sustainable superstars that you talk about only go up to like a size 12. I just want to reiterate that the average Canadian woman is not a size 12.
0: For sure, yeah.
1: So (laughs) they're cutting out an entire group of people. Um, I think I'm not not 100% sure about this, but I think the average woman is what, like a 14?
0: Yeah, I found a stat that said most clothing sales are in the category of 14 to 18. And, um I think that was specific to the States, but I can't imagine it's any different here.
1: No, there's it might be some variation, but no, I think it's quite, it's quite similar. Um, and even if they have bigger sizes, and this drives me nuts, is that you can never find them in store. So I don't know whether it's just, they don't want bigger people in their store, or it's just that those sizes sell out so quickly in the store. Um, but usually you can only find them online. Right. So again, that's another barrier. You know, do you have access to Internet? Do you have access to a computer? <laughs> um, do you, are you able to tell, you know, when someone, something fits you? Uh, so that's that's frustrating. Um, and this is related to sizing. and might seem a bit more superficial, but it does matter in terms of style. So a lot of the sustainable plus size clothing I see, it just is not trendy at all. It's, you know, these sort of really ill fitting things, basically moos. I don't know if you've ever worn a muumuu, but it's just like a giant like a pot, <laughs> like a tent on your body. Like not all plus size people want to wear those things. Um, and so, you know, if you have somebody who's plus size and wants to wear something that's trendy, but also sustain- sustainable, there are not that many options.
0: Yeah, I was, I was listening to an interview with Alexandra Waldman, who is one of the co-founders of an inclusive fashion brand called Universal Standard, and they make uh, sizes zero to 40. And uh, she talked about her rationale for creating the company in that she was like trying to find a high quality white t-shirt, which should be super easy to find. But because she's sort of like in plus sizing, she had a really difficult time finding a t-shirt that didn't have like a cat or flowers or something like that on it. And it's like, it's a white t-shirt. You should be able to buy a white (laughs) t-shirt. Truly. And
1: secondly, we are not all cat people. Like I would never wear something like that. (laughs) It'd be a betrayal to my dog. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's that's definitely, yeah, sizing is a huge barrier and finding things that are actually like not cats is, is important. Um, and related to this, and I don't know if this is more of a barrier or more of something that I think is an exclusion, is also at the level of marketing, right? So when you look at a lot of these, if you go on Instagram, you look at any sustainable fashion brands. I mean, it's better now actually after June's Black Lives Matter uh, sort of movement. But before that, it was so white right and mostly a white western audience too i would say um that was being marketed at so it's in terms of the models that they use in terms of the sizes of the models that they use i mean even if they do go up to like a size um 10x for example um you know they rarely have models that size so you have no idea how it looks on somebody who's your size
0: yeah like when a double zero model is showing clothes i'm like i don't fucking know what breasts are gonna look like under that shirt (laughs)
1: No, exactly. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Even if you are like a size zero, there are different body styles in size zero. Like it's just, yeah. So you don't, you don't see very much diversity in the marketing, which is unfortunate.
0: For sure. Yeah. Um, And then I'll just add to that time. I think it's another way that, um, another barrier to being able to participate in ethical fashion. It's like a lot easier to pop into a mall and grab a pair of jeans from just one of the shops there and, Otherwise, you have to kind of, you have to know enough to Google search these brands or to, you have to have read about sustainable fashion.
2: Or they're often somewhere that's not as easily accessible by transit or, yeah, or even just shopping. It sucks if you've got maybe kids with you and you're working a full-time job or two. It's so much easier, like, oh, I need clothes. The kids need, need clothes. Let's just go to Walmart.
0: Absolutely, exactly. yeah.
2: It's one-stop shopping.
0: So yeah, I think that is like a it's a very relevant barrier as well. Um, but let's let's talk about the the big brands and problems with inclusive sizing. And I want to start by uh, Brianna, you had shared a video about Lululemon on your Instagram feed, yes. and I was just hoping <laughs> you could describe it to listeners to start.
1: So, as some of you might have heard, uh, Lululemon just launched to a size twenty. This was with much pomp and circumstance on their Instagram. You know, there was a really, like, intense video about, like, we've been working on this for, like, two years. You know, we're really proud. Um, Anyway, so somebody, uh, plus size blogger, I believe. I don't recall her name off the top of my head, unfortunately. But she made this um, reel on Instagram. Um, And basically, it was sort of uh, mocking Lululemon for this. Um, You know, she was like, so you're going up to a size 20. But you, like, currently go to, like, a size 16. So you're like only adding three sizes and it took you two years <laughs> and you're only adding three sizes in six styles. To be clear, Lululemon has hundreds of styles. Yes. So just- <laughs> and that's just the shorts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so and I'm pretty sure I'm not even sure I'm doing them in different colors. I think it might just be black.
0: Oh, my gosh. So it's
1: a, sort of one of these like performative inclusion things. We're like, oh, look, we think about plus size people. And for context, the owner of Lululemon Lemon once said he doesn't want fat people wearing his clothes. Um, I think he's no longer the owner. I don't I don't know what happened with him. But just for context, in terms of the fat phobia that is so ingrained in Lululemon. Um, and I've never seen a plus size model on their website. So I hope with this new quote unquote collection that they do use plus size models. Um, but we will see. My hopes are not high for Lululemon.
0: Yeah, for sure. No, it's it seems it seems absolutely like wild that there's such a problem with inclusive sizing. Given like as Brianna, as you mentioned, like most people are in plus sizes, so it seems like a fairly obvious way to make money if you're a big brand to actually have sizes that fit most people. And, and also, like when we're talking about the shift towards like sustainability and ethical standards like consumers really care about body positivity and, and inclusive style, um, sizing it's like one of the top 4 considerations that uh people take into mind when they're looking at the values that companies propose so i guess i guess my question is like have you observed a change recently and if not like why not <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wow. That's a, that's a big question.
0: <laughs> um, so
1: to, the short answer, I guess, is that, yes, there has been a change. However, it's been very, very, very superficial. And it's I, more, I would say, body positive washing. I guess, like, you're talking about greenwashing, but body positivity version. Um, so, yeah, it would be things like what Lululemon did. Will they go up to, like, a size 20? Um, or Anthropologie also recently launched, although um, uh, I, I wouldn't call them a sustainable brand, but they recently launched um, a plus-size uh, collection as well, um, but again, was it available in stores? No, at least not in Canada. I don't know, maybe in the US it was. And I think I don't remember what size it went up to, but it wasn't very large either. Um, so they'll make these nods to body positivity, and they'll use like these sort of—they will use plus-size models, except they'll be sort of an idealized version of plus-size models. For example, you know, they'll have, to have, have a very flat tummy. I mean, they might have like a little bit more thigh there. Um, they'll use people who are very. Um, Yeah, they're plus size, but they're like an acceptable mode of plus size. As I said, you know, they don't have sort of the lumps and and real curves that, you know, some bigger plus size people have. So, again, it's sort of like, yes, we're willing to include plus size people, but only on our um, territory. And the same thing I would say, too, if you're looking at race, um, you know, they'll use models that are more light skinned. For example, they won't use the really darker skinned models. Um, and I rarely see anybody with disabilities, like visible disabilities as a model. So, <laughs> yeah. And I think why we're seeing this sort of superficial engagement is, as you said, it's sort of a smart profit move right now because people are really, really engaged, except people are only engaged at a very superficial level, right? They aren't, act- they'll see a plus size model and be like, yay, diversity. And they won't really think about um, more deep inclusion. Um, you know, having that, not just having one post where you have one plus size model, who, quite frankly, is not really I mean, is on the smaller side, um, you know, having that regularly. Like Universal standards is a really good example of that, because frequently in their marketing, you see different kinds of bodies. And that for me is more true inclusion. Um, but among the bigger brands, I mean, I think it's really, really superficial.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about uh, I was listening to an interview with uh, a body positivity writer and photographer named Marielle Elizabeth. And she, I thought, had some really uh, smart comments on the reasons that clothing companies have been slow to adopt inclusive sizing. The first thing that she says is basically that until about five years ago, the main barrier was just fat phobia and harmful narratives that kind of stem from it. Um, And one of the narratives she was talking about was the idea that – there had been this sense in the fashion industry for a long time that larger people don't spend as much on clothing because they're trying to lose weight, which is, like, so fucked up on so many
1: levels. We just exist to lose weight.
0: Yeah, it's like, I. there are just layers of shittiness in that kind of narrative. Um, and she, she said that there's been, like, a lot of progress in smashing narratives of that kind, um, and that sort of, like fashion-forward plus-size people have really, like, shown um, that it's not true and, like, some b- inclusive-sizing brands have been making lots of money and that it's kind of, um, that, that attitude's kind of starting to change. At any rate, to get to the second thing that Marielle Elizabeth was saying, she's saying that in the last five years, it's not so much these fat phobic narratives because they've been kind of um, pretty successfully smashed. But now it's more about sort of like uh, the financial investment because there's an initial cost to introducing inclusive sizing. And she said that's especially true if you're going to be going beyond size 18 just because um, apparently the way you're, like you would have to sort of redesign clothing a little bit and like rethink what the proportions were after size 18 just because people don't sort of grow on a a one-to-one size increase. So like um, if you're just increasing the proportions as you would um, in sizes like 0 through 18 it doesn't really work beyond that. So it does like require a little bit of thinking but it's something that companies should do and um, some are starting to do well especially the bigger companies
1: and I mean I do understand the financial issue and the you know actually getting designers who know how to work with plus size bodies might be a challenge however, I have also seen very small brands on instagram you know who's basically just like a three-person show able to go up to like a tedx and so i think it's less that it's a cost or a barrier it's just that it's a matter of priorities you know is your priority to have inclusive sizing then you can make it work especially the large brands so yes to a certain extent but as i said it's priorities
0: no absolutely um i guess maybe we could talk about sustainable fashion brands specifically um There are a number of slow fashion brands that have introduced inclusive sizing or that started the company with inclusive sizing to begin with, but a lot of them that I've seen kind of, they stop at size 18. I don't know. Is that, do you think that that's just inclusive washing or um, is it okay for that to be kind of like an intermediate step? I don't know.
1: Well, I think it's difficult for all three of us to sort of say because none of us are above a size 18 right? So I don't know. And I know that, there, you know, there are many women who are above a size 18. I think if you really are serious about inclusive sizing, you need to go um, beyond that. I mean, it's what I can understand if you sort of started with that, as long as you made the commitment that you were going to go bigger. But the thing is, when, when brands do that, when they say, okay, we'll be more inclusive after, it's sort of like, so are those of us who can't fit into your clothes, those of us who can't like find shades or whatever, are we just an afterthought to you? like it just it doesn't sit well with me i mean i understand to a certain extent for small brands but as i said before it's a matter of priorities so yeah it's, i sort of feel kind of funny about it
0: if that makes sense for sure yeah and um i i think that's totally right that if you think about it as like who are you excluding when you start um then yeah perhaps what message is that even finding? small companies yeah cuz i mean it, it, sustainable fashion brands, oftentimes when they're really, really small, they start with like a made to order kind of approach. And so that doesn't seem particularly harder to do um, if you're, you know, sizing for everybody. So yeah, why can't they?
1: Yeah, the best examples actually are brands that if they okay, say if they stop at a a 2x or whatever, then they offer custom sizing. Now that is another alternative that brands could do is that if you don't want to you know, produce like a full um, collection up to like as many of her sizes are needed, you know, go up to the size that you can with your current resources, but then offer customers the opportunity to put in their measurements and make to order. And there are small brands that do that, partly because they are sort of smaller operations, so they can, right? They're not sort of trying
0: to minimize their production costs.
1: I mean, they are, but not to the same extent as say the bigger brands, right?
0: Yeah, I mean... It's it's kind of interesting how the the norms are changing too because it seemed like kind of the first wave in terms of inclusive sizing is like pushing people or pushing companies to to produce up to size eighteen and now it seems like a lot of um, the move is to to go to size twenty four but in both of those cases you're still excluding a lot of people so yeah I think part of that
1: too is once you start getting over people is remember this sort of goes back to the point I was making about like acceptable fats. Versus like non acceptable fats. And I don't use the, fat, the term fat in a derogatory term. I mean, there's a whole thing about the body positivity movement um, sort of taking back that term as not being derogatory. So, yeah, the acceptable fats, quote unquote, are like the 18, 24 sometimes, right? That they are, they are, you know, plus size, but they're more acceptable to like the straight size people. But when you're talking about people who are really, really overweight, there are so many stereotypes. And I think they're much more a victim of fat phobia than smaller um, fat people are for example. Um, And I wonder whether that's part of it, too, that brands don't want to be seen to be catering to this certain group of people because of all the sort of fat phobia that's around it. I mean, I don't remember who you were talking about earlier um, that was saying that, you know, yeah, there's less fat phobia now. People are, are, you know, those narratives about fat people have been um, or have become less prominent, but they still are prominent for a big segment of plus size people. Um, And so I wonder if that also influences how brands think.
0: Yeah, for sure. It, it seems um, like impossible that it wouldn't affect them in some way. Yeah, I wonder whether we could talk about some sustainable fashion brands. Um, are there any that sort of come to mind for you as like particularly good or bad on inclusive sizing? So one of them, which I think most
1: people will have heard of, is Girlfriend Collective. Um, which I, mean, I know you own a pair of pants. Anyways, yeah, so Girlfriend Collective, um, which they make activewear that's made from recycled uh, plastic water bottles. So, I mean, they are sustainable in that sense in that they do use recycled plastic bottles. When I ordered from them, it came from, like, Hong Kong. So I don't know uh, about their, their working standards and the whole, like, having it have be flown. Um probably not great.
0: Yeah, I mean, they do just just to pop in on that, because I also looked into Girlfriend Collective, they have a good on you rating of great. And uh, that's includes a five out of five rating for human rights. They have um, like certification under one of the ISO standards. So um, I think just just to pop in their their, um, their workers rights are probably okay. That's good to know.
1: And, And they do have inclusive sizing, they go up to a 6XL. Um, And they do use diverse models, at least when it comes to race and body uh, type. Again, I have not seen models with visible disabilities. Um, So they are inclusive, I think, in terms of what you're, especially when you're looking at like active wear. I mean, they're like days away from, or years away, sorry, from uh, Lululemon when it comes to inclusion.
0: Yeah, even like, does Patagonia even do inclusive sizing? Let me see. They go up to
1: a 2XL, but only in select styles. So even I can't fit into some of their stuff sometimes. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's a bit frustrating. Because um, <laughs> Patagonia is nice. and it's also super expensive. Although they do have now a, a secondhand store as well, um, which you can buy from. So that's a bit more, but the price is still really expensive, even if you're getting it secondhand.
2: Oh, oh <laughs> maybe I can shop at Patagonia. Now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: in terms of other brands, I'm trying to think of bigger brands people might have heard of. Um, there's one based out of Toronto called Cotton. So they go up to a size 2XL, and I believe their workers' rights are, are okay, because they make it in Egypt, and I think they work with local um, people there.
0: Are they the one that's spelled like K-O-T-N? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know why, honestly. It's, <laughs> I,
1: don't know why. I guess it's quirky. Um, <laughs> I don't know. They do have nice clothes, though, and uh, it does go up, you know, to to a 2XL. And sometimes the 2XL will fit bigger people, depending on what the style is. Um, But, again, that's not – I wouldn't say that's, like, super, super inclusive. And, again, it's not in every style. And usually the plus-size stuff sells out, like, in an hour. It's very frustrating. There's also a brand called Reformation. But, again, it's not in every – Style that they have—it's sort of like a capsule collection, and it's super expensive. And the models they use are just like a definitely a, a very—I uh, don't want to say high standard, but they um, unattainable beauty standards—is what I would describe, I guess, their model. In terms of smaller brands that people might not have heard of, but that I follow on Instagram and I find do a really good job. One of them is called Loud Bodies, and so that was the, the brand I was talking about when they um, said, you know. Plus sizes are a matter of priority. Um, And so she goes up to a size 10XL. And again, it's a very small shop. I think it's just her and her family, five people, and they ship all over the world. Um, And another brand called Pamut, which is based, I think, in the U.S. And again, she just wrote a post about how it was not difficult to scale clothing. Like if you really make the effort. And I think, too, she talked about how often, even if you do um, decide to have inclusive sizing, you'll often start the design thinking about a straight size person. But this time, she said when she was making her um, plus size collection, or, or when she was extending her sizing, sorry, um, she said, You know what? I tried to think about a plus size body first and then design down from that. And I think that that's a really revolutionary way of thinking about it because a lot of the brands that do have inclusive sizing don't do that. And that has implications for fit, it has implications for style.
0: Yeah, I want to give um, a shout out for uh, Power of My People. It's a BC based brand brand. Uh, it's an ethical fashion company. It is pretty pricey. But I, I've i been trying to approach fashion lately with like when I am buying something, I try to buy investment pieces that are super basic. And Power of My People is great for that because they mostly sell button downs, <laughs> just one color button downs. So those are going to be in style forever. And uh, they only go up to 3XL, but they I think they do go up to it for all of their styles. The The other thing I wanted to note, probably we should have said this earlier, but I didn't think about it until just now, which is, a, I'm so sorry, um, is... We haven't talked about adaptive clothing for people with disabilities at all, um, Yeah, but that's totally another way people are excluded in the fashion industry.
1: Well, I'm just not sure like generic brands, I don't see any sort of information about like how you can change your clothes. I mean, I guess it's assumed that people with disabilities go to a tailor or something, but that's very pricey.
2: I saw on Reddit once a guy who didn't have a left leg and so he always had to buy two pairs of shoes, but he only ever needed the right shoe. And he posted about it on Reddit and somebody who only had the other leg was like, oh, I have the same problem. And they got in touch with each other and they started buying shoes together because they were the same size feet.
1: I mean, that's so wholesome, but like they should have been able to buy
2: something on their own. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's a very positive Reddit story, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a Reddit story. Maybe I just made it up. I'm pretty sure I heard it once. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think as well, like, there, there do seem to be, like, general principles evolving around adaptive clothing. I certainly don't know, like, I didn't think to even research it before this episode, so I apologize to people with disabilities that are listening. That really should have been more of a focus. Um, but things like um, having closures that are Velcro instead of buttons, having, like, snaps for people that can't raise their arms, zippers with, like, easier pull tabs. Like, I know myself, I've had trouble with, like, some zippers sometimes d- some on clothing. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh gosh. Make those things bigger. Uh, yeah, so like there, there are ways to design clothing for, um, for people with disabilities, and maybe that's something that uh, the fashion industry needs to focus on more.
1: Well, I think it's the same thing when I was talking about, you know, assumptions about what, you know, bigger people do or do not want. I think there's an assumption about what um, people with disabilities do and do not want. It's an assumption that's wrong. You know, people with disabilities have the right to have clothes. They have the right to have access to sustainable fashion if they want it, you know?
0: Yeah, they have the right to be fierce. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Do we want to talk about thrift shopping? Oh, yes. Yeah, I guess... uh... Tell us about thrift shops and clothing subscriptions and why they're not inclusive.
1: Yeah, so thrift shops. Um, now, there's a really prominent plus size blogger called Stephanie Abel, and she talks about this all the time because people always come. Actually, I say she's also a fashion blogger, not only a plus size blogger, but um, people always come at her because she they're, they're saying that she promotes so much fast fashion and they should tell her, oh, why don't you go thrift? And she always points out. That when skinny people go thrifting, they will often buy plus size clothing because they're trying to go for like the oversized or like alternative look. So not only do we not have that much supply in thrift shop anyways, but you have skinny people coming in and buying up all of the plus size clothing. So that's one issue. I mean, even in the first place, there's not that much stock of plus size clothes in thrift stores. And I don't know whether it's because people aren't donating to thrift stores or, their, or consignment shops are not giving their plus size clothes. Maybe because it's so hard to find plus size clothes in general. So it's really, really difficult um if you are plus size, especially if you're you're bigger, um to find clothes at a thrift shop. So it's not always a, a solution for plus size people. Um now in terms of clothing subscription, same thing. I have not seen a clothing subscription that has like anything over a size sixteen.
0: No, and to be honest, they're like I remember looking at clothing subscription companies for our clothing episode, and there weren't that many out there to begin with, so...
1: Yeah, it's very new.
0: Yeah. Maybe it's something that'll improve, but I, I wanted to unpack a little bit more on why the supply of like plus-size clothing in secondhand shops is so low, because uh, I did a little bit of digging on it, and I came up with some factors, one of them is sort of, uh, I think you had, you had mentioned this, um, but because fashion brands haven't been selling in inclusive sizes, um, people with larger bodies often haven't had the same level of access to like the high quality pieces that consignment stores often look for. And then at the same time, there's oftentimes uh, like a lot of in- fat phobia in what consignment scor- stores are like selecting for their inventory. So those are both uh, things that influence it. As well, there is sort of like a documented impact of fat phobia on the livelihoods of people. So there's like people who are in plus size range make, I guess, 90 cents on the dollar of of what people who aren't make uh, because of fat phobia and like the ways that it sort of percolates into society. It influences what people have to spend on clothing, but it also means that like there's a really high demand for secondhand clothing in thrift shops. So. It's not necessarily that things aren't being donated, um, although probably there is less of it, but also that like when they are donated, it's in such high demand already, not only because of the demand from people who are plus size, but also, as you mentioned, like people buying in oversized clothing at, at secondhand stores. And also there's apparently this thing where people will go and they'll buy like plus size items in thrift shops when they're in fun patterns, just like to cut them up and to convert them. Go to Fabricland. Like (laughs) I just (laughs) go to Fabricland.
1: I'm really glad though that you um, that you raised the point about sort of the material consequences of fat phobia. Aside from just having access to clothes, like it really it affects your income. And I think people don't realize that they're like, oh, why are you people complaining? You know, it's your fault. You're fat. Firstly, there are a bunch of reasons why people might be overweight or not. Um, so it's not, it's not their fault. And the fact is, is that they are being discriminated against when it comes to income, like many other marginalized groups. Um, and as you said, that has an impact on what they can and cannot afford and what they can buy. So it, it really does affect multiple aspects of their lives.
0: Yeah, I will say that it seems as though there is some change that's starting to happen. Uh, there are entrepreneurs that are starting to create body positive consignment and resale stores. Um, and like that's starting to pop up in a few American cities. It's probably not in most Canadian cities yet because we're always like three or four years behind whatever happens. <laughs> um, but the other thing is like uh, online consignment and thrift shops are starting to change that game too. So thread up, I think they could be doing better, but they do have up to four XL on their website. I think why not increase that, <laughs> you know, but uh, it's a start, I suppose. I think
1: through Poshmark too, you should be able, in theory, to buy plus size clothes. But again, with Poshmark, it depends on who's on it. Um, there's also an Instagram account called Sell Trade Plus, um, but again, it's very small, um, so there's not really a lot of stock, and they are based in the U.S. and they only occasionally ship to Canada, so that is one barrier.
0: I wanted to talk about clothing swaps too, because. Um... Oh yeah. Yeah, on its face, like I initially thought clothing swaps that could be a solution to this problem. I mean, obviously not like a systemic solution, but that's something people could do. But then I kind of thought to my own experience with clothing shops uh, or clothing swaps and like my own insecurities were like very strongly at play when I've participated in them. Um, and I just wonder whether that might not introduce like some other problematic areas. I don't know. What do you think? Are clothing swaps like a good way to, um, increase? access to inclusive fashion i
1: feel like they could be but again it depends on who shows up um you know if you're if i went to a clothing swap and it was all like size four people like that's not gonna not only am i not gonna get any clothes that's also going to have you know negative impact on my you know self-image and my body like how i how i view my body you know and i think as is the case of many other sort of marginalized populations having you know, spaces just dedicated to plus size bodies, that could be, um, a good, a good solution, but I haven't seen any sort of, um, plus size only clothing swaps. So that might be something that, you know, that we need to organize. Um, but I think it does have the potential, but it depends on who shows up. And I think it would be better if it was a plus size only space.
0: Yeah. Sort of like, that's also with thrift, with, the uh, thrift stores, something that, um, like, having plus-size-only thrift stores are sort of seen as one of the, the solutions to...
1: Although you, you still might have one of these people going and looking for fabric.
0: Yeah, that's true. I feel like there would be a little bit more, like, side-eye happening, you
2: know? I mean, but- so I, I've never done that, but I totally might have without thinking about it. And I just... Not <laughs> to be the 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 naysayer here on that one, but wouldn't it still be better to get fabric secondhand than going and buying it new?
1: That's true. Yeah, yeah. But surely there's another solution.
0: Yeah, I think it's like if you're going to like um like a value village and you're not like it's not super high quality clothing that you're getting, and there's lots of selection in plus sizes. Like, I wouldn't feel that conflicted about using the fabric but Mm,
2: but if you walk into like a fancy vintage shop and there's only like three large pieces and they're lovely don't buy them and tear them apart okay noted i'll just write that down yeah Yeah. please
1: please do not (laughs) do that (laughs) (laughs) There's actually one more solution that I've seen more and more now, and it's sort of like, well, making your own, except I've seen companies that now have make-your-own-kits. So I was looking the other day at buying wool, and they also include, like, the pattern. So you can literally knit your own sweater, and the company will provide the kit for that. However, guess what size they go up to? Oh, no. (laughs) An extra large, my friends, an extra large. Apparently, bigger people don't knit. I don't know. It's just. Yeah, so you see, it's very, very pervasive, but I do think, you know, if we could find some sort of solution um, in that space, too, where, you know, there are more, or plus sizes are more included, that could be another solution. But again, who has time to make their own clothes? Like, and not everybody is good
2: with their hands.
1: I mean,
0: all <laughs> they have to do is include extra wool. <laughs> I am, I'm learning to knit right now, and it's so fucking I hard. It. <laughs> it's, it's going so poorly.
1: <laughs> are, what are you? What are you even making? It looks like some sort of Zelda hood. Like, is that what you're doing?
0: Or it- I'm making a dishcloth because I was told by the lady in the, in the yarn shop that it was the easiest thing to make. And honestly, I've been working on it for a week and I've had to redo so many rows because I fuck up one line and then I have to like <laughs> meticulously go. Anyway. Um- well, if it's any, if
1: it's any consolation, I was trying actually to repair, I hate to say this, a pair of old Bulu lemons I had. And I don't know how I did this, but I managed to sew the pants to the clothes I was currently wearing. Oh, no. <laughs> as I said, it's just not a talent I'm ever going to have, but you know, I appreciate that some people, um, you know, are good at sewing and there's another, so there's another company called Sew Liberated and they go up to much, much more inclusive sizing. I don't know off the top of my head, but they provide sewing patterns. And so, you know, if you're a plus size person and if you're good at sewing, that that is actually a really great solution. Um, but again, then you have to find fabric as well. And I don't know, how expensive fabric is and how that, that might play in.
0: That's true. Yeah, I have no idea how expensive fabric is. Uh, <laughs> so do we want to talk about ethical fashion and affordability now? <laughs> sure. So um, I think class classes, um, you know, it's another major barrier to participation in ethical fashion. And I know it's been a factor for me, probably a lot of listeners, too. So I wanted to dig into some of the the reasons for it. And I mean, I think we can can start by covering the fact that like on a one-to-one basis, if you buy a fast fashion shirt, it's going to be cheaper than slow fashion. There's just no way around that. Lots of blogs have pointed that out. And there is a counter from like ethical fashion advocates that sort of say, there are ways to spend less on slow fashion, good quality clothes last longer, so it makes sense to buy for longer, which, like, that is a good argument to a certain extent, but I think there are a few limitations to that that maybe we can dig into. One of them being that it can be unaffordable to make those one-time investments, even though, like, over 10 years, maybe a really nice pair of, like, Boots might be cheaper than having to buy a bunch of fast fashion boots that get destroyed by the Toronto salt every year. Um, (laughs) But like if you can't afford like the $500 pair of boots, it doesn't matter if it's cheaper over 10 years if you can't afford to pay for it at the time. So like I think affordability is in part about like liquidity and people who are on like a paycheck to paycheck system, which is most of us, um, that can be really hard. Then there is questions of class and wardrobe stability. So investing a lot in a few pieces can be a good strategy, but if your size fluctuates, that can make it difficult. Also, if your lifestyle changes, like, I mean, I'm very lucky because as a grad student, I have no expectations about wearing professional things, but like um, people that that switch to jobs that have different dress um, expectations The idea of having one stable wardrobe if your your lifestyle is shifting all the time can be really hard and then there's just the the question of time right like who has time to learn to make their own clothes and to do that well time is a privilege so i don't know
1: (laughs) i have a few reactions to that in terms of the liquidity issue i've seen more and more and i don't i don't think interest is involved but i could be wrong i've seen that there's now like payment options for certain brands like where you can pay in installments for a piece of clothing. I've seen anthropology does that, for example. Um, So that is one thing that sustainable brands could do. But more fundamentally, you know, if you're a sustainable or an ethical clothing company, you know, to what extent should profit actually be your primary motive, right? Because in theory, you're in this because you want to do something good for the world and you want to make a little bit of money. But your profit margin, you should not be aiming to have the same profit margin as a fast fashion company, I would argue right? So if your prices are really a reflection of trying to increase your profit margin, I think you really need to uh, look at your priorities as a sustainable and ethical company.
0: Yeah. And like, th- this might be a, like really out of left field, but I actually think <laughs> more, um, there should be more nonprofit versions of these kinds of things. Yes. Because like, really, there's there's no reason if what you're trying to do is build like an ethical ethos. Like, I get it. Profit's great. Uh- <laughs> Money's awesome. But like if that's not what you're trying to do when you set up your brand, there's really no reason to to set up the model that way and then I think you can ensure that you don't turn into like, you know, a brand that ends up getting sold out and doesn't really reflect any of its values. <coughs> <coughs> <Next>. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, obviously you need to make enough to pay your workers and you know, make an income yourself. But, you know, it should be, you know, you shouldn't be aiming to be a millionaire if you're in the sustainable or ethical space, I would argue.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I don't know, I guess maybe that's one solution to questions of affordability is just like if we truly had more businesses that weren't profit focused. I don't know, Second hand can be a really good solution if the price point is the barrier for you. But if time is the barrier, like... I have to go to three consignment shops before I find one item I buy. Like <laughs> it's it's not quick.
1: And consignment shops also range a lot in price.
0: Absolutely, even
1: value. Village, sometimes I definitely have a side eye. Like you know, I always think I'm going to go in there spending maybe like less than fifty dollars, and then always end up spending more. I mean, granted, that's I only generally go in when I'm looking for a Halloween costume. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the problem. But you know, I do think even in secondhand shops there's some affordability um, issues.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Especially if you're going into like one of the like fancy vintage shops. Yeah. Yeah. If it's marketed
1: as vintage, uh, you're you're in for like <laughs> a crazy price for something that like is falling apart.
0: Yeah. And like if you're if you're going to a high end consignment store because you wanna find like a brand that you really like and you can't afford to pay for it, like that's great. Absolutely do that. Um extending the lifestyle the, the life of clothes is great. Um, so this like discussion about affordability is not to shame people for doing bougie things. like that's totally okay. Um, but yeah, I don't know what the the way around it is. I suppose just like recognizing that everyone has different experiences, identities, and challenges and that like like what you're able to do isn't necessarily what people around you can do, and that's okay. So I think it, it comes with like, first of all, the duty not to judge other people when you're on your sort of like ethical consumption journey, whatever that looks like. Oh,
1: absolutely. It's like these these eco-warriors that, you know, judge people so hard if they don't buy a certain way and they don't realize the types of privileges that they have access to that other people don't, as you said. You need to really, you know, when you're in this space, you have to acknowledge, you know, the different kinds of privileges that you have.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like with this podcast, like some of my friends will be like, oh, you know, I, I bought from this fast fashion brand or whatever, and they're sort of sheepish about it. And it's like, no, like <laughs> we're, we're doing this podcast to like try our best, but like, I still like, I still occasionally buy fast fashion because like, honestly, sometimes you just don't have the budget for the the more sustainable stuff. And like, I think as long as you're being like mindful then it's okay you know everybody's on a journey
1: that was very eat pray love of you <laughs> oh god
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god well as long as you guys didn't accuse me of being goop that's fine i guess <laughs> I,
1: I, I, I do own a goop product and i love it it was really expensive but it was definitely worth it um yeah, what I is it?
0: it i have to know now <laughs>
1: It's an ex no, it's not the vagina candle if that, were, if
0: that was what you were thinking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, like an exfoliator. I don't know, it just makes my skin feel so soft, but it was yeah, it was definitely pricey. But as I said, my, my quarter life crisis has been skincare, so I feel like it's what's gotten me through the pandemic.
0: That's fair. I had that moment when I turned 30. I was like, oh my God, do I have to like yeah. <laughs> care about skincare <laughs> regimens now? <laughs> the other thing that I had for what you can do to, um, like it, keeping in mind the barriers of affordability and other things um, is that like, first of all, don't judge. And secondly, like, I think recognizing these like barriers and exclusions comes with it a duty to use your privilege to make ethical consumption easier to access. So that means asking your favorite sustainable brands to size inclusively, to produce makeup in different shades, um, various things like that. And it also means that you have to help push for those more systemic solutions. So whether that's getting like legislation passed or increasing supply chain traceability, like the things that can help everybody participate, because ideally you want like the gap or whatever to be able to be sustainable too. like just shutting yourself off in your wall of like these super pricey sustainable fashion brands is not not going to get to the solution anyway. But, but Brianna, you had some really good suggestions um, about uh, solutions to size inclusivity problems in the fashion industry. So I wonder if you might mind telling us about that.
1: Yeah, well, I already mentioned a few of them being, you know, plus size only secondhand shopping. So dedicated spaces just for plus size people, um, more made to order sizing um, or tailoring. Although I note that tailoring can be sometimes quite expensive as well. And as you said, you know, really pressuring brands to be more inclusive, Um, You know, brands often will do a survey, so, you know, if they do a survey, ask them to be more inclusive. You know, I think anthropology sort of pivot to having plus size, was partly because people in all the surveys they kept sending out kept saying, you know, we want bigger sizing. And so they responded, you know, these things do matter and reviews as well do make a difference. Um, You know, I've seen a lot of uh, brands sort of shamed into increasing their shade range um, because people left reviews being like, well, you know, black people can't shop here. So what is the point? Um, so I think, you know, as you said, you do have a voice, you know, you you could use your your dollars and only shop at places um that do have inclusive sizing. Um what I really, really do not think is a solution and yet I still see people doing it, is telling people who face the different barriers that we've talked about that they just shouldn't consume then. You know, if you can't consume you don't consume.
0: Oh, like <laughs>
1: condescending like it's one thing to make the choice not to buy you know like plenty of people do no buy years plenty of people decide that they just don't want to engage in capitalism at all
2: yeah in a perfect world we'd all stop being consumers (laughs) right but you know it's one
1: thing thing to decide not to engage in that but it's another thing when you don't have choice and I think absolutely you know it's just it's really all these structural factors that are beyond our control that really influence whether or not we have access to these things and that's not right Yeah, so I think, you know, part of the onus for sustainable consumption is on us as the individual, you know, to make the right choices. But we need to have, like, a supply of things among which to make a choice. So I think the brands and suppliers, you know, they need to be more inclusive so that everyone uh, can have access to ethical consumption. No matter, you know, their class, their race, their size, their gender as well. We didn't really talk about that. But, you know, no matter what your, your, your situation is, you should be able to consume ethically
0: definitely so I think that's those are all the themes I wanted to get through um, usually we do like a call to action is there anything that you want to tell listeners to do
1: <laughs> um, other than what I other than what I just I just told you um, two things one if you have a friend who's plus size do not talk about how you're feeling fat or how you're not feeling like comfortable in your body or you can actually know you can say you're not feeling comfortable in your body but don't be like oh I feel so fat today like it's so insensitive please don't do that so basically just be conscious of your friend's situation so not only in terms of size but you know don't talk about things that might make your friends uncomfortable
0: (laughs) (laughs) be nice to your friends (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. um yeah and the second thing I
1: will say because as I was talking to you before this um Download the COVID-19 alert app if you are in Canada. Um, I just got a uh, got an alert that uh, has put me in, in uh, isolation for three days. But you know what? I wouldn't have gotten tested if that app hadn't told me. So do download it. Um, and hopefully you can get access to a test in a timely manner.
2: Yeah,
0: here's hoping.
2: Yes, because if you forgot <laughs> during the course of this podcast, we are still in a pandemic.
0: <laughs> and wasn't that a nice however long this episode was? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, one last
1: thing. Make sure if you see a dog that you pet them and tell them that they are a good boy or girl. That would be the last thing I would say. Oh,
2: I did that today. (laughs)
1: Excellent. Well done.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Brianna. This was absolutely lovely. Yeah, this was fun. Did you want listeners to
1: follow you anywhere? Um, They can follow me on Twitter at Brianna Scrimbury, but honestly, most of my content is environment and dog stuff, so...
2: That sounds great. That sounds like what our <laughs> listeners are into. So we'll we'll share yes. a link to your Twitter. And people know, of course, that they can follow us on Pullback Podcast. Normally, we just get shade from the Palm Oil Brigade. So, you know, slide into our DMs and send something else.
1: <laughs> I didn't even know there was a
2: Palm Oil Brigade. Dear God.
0: Oh, there is. <laughs> <laughs> the only trolls we've ever had. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, folks, thanks for listening. And we'll catch you on the next episode. We endorse stealing from Lululemon if you want to wear their clothes. (laughs) I'm
0: going to cut that out. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we're just doing crimes now. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man.